previously on Dying for a Fight. This community doesn't trust the police and doesn't want to talk to them, and that makes it hard for you to solve this murder, which makes them not trust the police and not want to talk to you. How do you solve that? I don't know. Isn't it sort of your job? I don't believe that they're going to investigate. I mean, they have people they've not said anything. A lot of my brain space is people that I thought were supposed to be my friends trying to tear me down. That hurts way more than the death threats. It was basically wanting to defy them by them them not wanting anyone to know what happened to him. I, I snapped. I saw Red and I just kicked her. That's so good. It really did. It felt so good. Before we get started, a warning. This episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing or traumatic. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. So, like, there were, like, cops that knew him by name. Plural cops that knew him by first and last. And were not fans. According to Micah Fletcher, Portland police officers knew Sean was at protests, causing trouble before he died. Sean was, like, just chilling, doing nothing. And I shit you not, this bike cop just rolls by, skids up, goes, bitch, and just fucking flies away. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Sean's reputation, according to his friends, was earned in some ways. So bike cops used to be a thing in Portland, right? Like, really frequently. We still have them. They're just not utilized as much. Part of why they're not utilized as much is I think it's a little bit because of Sean. Because somehow, the black got the idea in their head to start tossing Pepsi cans at police officers. You might remember Pepsi had an infamous ad featuring Kendall Jenner where she hands a police officer a soda at a protest. I'm not going to say that that was Sean's idea. I am going to say that Sean made a lot of jokes about Pepsi cans. Sean had minor run-ins with law enforcement during his life, but despite his reputation, he only went to jail once. Sean was arrested in May of 2015 on a bike path near his mom's house. Friends say that Sean was already shaving his head at that point and hanging out with anti-racist skinheads. According to the police arrest report, Officer Tom Pennington was driving down the bike path slowly in his police vehicle. He was looking for a guy who was allegedly assaulting a woman in the area. As the police car approached Sean, Sean stepped into the middle of the bike path. We don't have Sean's account. We only have the police report to go on here. Officer Pennington says Sean wouldn't let him pass. And that's when the exchange between him and I happened. And uh, it's very unfortunate. Pennington wrote in his report, that he honked a horn and waved for Sean to move. Sean replied, quote, fuck you, you need to move. And then he flipped off Pennington. It was surprising to me, and he was immediately angry, just complete defiance right away. After losing the suspect, police arrested Sean. He was later charged for interfering with a peace officer, a misdemeanor. Pennington has since left the police force because he felt a religious calling to become a pastor. He told producer Ryan Haas that Sean was combative as he took him to jail. Did you become aware of his reputation or was anyone like, oh, I know that kid, like he's always at a protest, that kind of stuff? No, um, in your email you said that he was either an anarchist or part of an anarchy movement or something like that. Mm -hmm. That was new information to me. Mm -hmm. Once I had arrested him, I moved on. His name never came up again. And after a one-day trial, Sean was sentenced to jail. Laura Callier says it felt like a new escalation for him. He got sentenced for interfering with a police officer. And they actually made him go to jail. I think he only served six or eight days or something like that. The strange thing about this jail time is that after so many years of protests and avoiding arrests, Sean was looking forward to being locked up. He, he said, this will be a great experience. What the fuck? Did you talk to him while he was in there? No, he wouldn't talk to me. He goes, oh, no communication. I, I, I got to understand what's going on. I think he wanted to learn. Wait, what? Yeah, he, I think he really wanted to be immersed in the situation and, and see what it's like. He wanted to get rid of like the prison system and jail system. So I think for him, he took it as an opportunity. This opportunity wasn't everything Sean had hoped it would be. He did say that it, some of it was a little scary because obviously there are skinheads there that are not anti-racist skinheads, and it was difficult for him because he wanted to stay the hell away from them. He was worried that 
you know, it might get dangerous for him. Laura says that seeing the jail system from the inside just reinforced Sean's beliefs that jails and prisons aren't a place for people reformed. He wanted total abolition of police and prisons. We, we, we actually talked about it. He said if he was going to ever end up with a serious sentence, he would have taken his own life. He said that? Yeah. Because he knew how corrupt and disgusting the prison system was and how much abuse, and, and it has nothing to do with justice. Pushing boundaries like Sean did, saying how many cages you could rattle before you end up in one, is something I saw a lot during the more than 100 consecutive days of protests in Portland over the summer of 2020. That long period of protests was different from the years of left-right clashes in the years leading up to it. This was a fight explicitly between left-wing protesters and the police. Protesters would light trash bins on fire or break windows and swear at officers to get a reaction out of them. They'd throw water bottles and fireworks. And police would snap on some nights, unleash hell on people who were antagonizing them. During the biggest racial justice protest Portland had ever seen, it was like Sean's energy was out in the streets, even though he'd been killed seven months earlier. Would Sean have been out there this past summer? Sean would be in prison right now. <laughs> he would have been out there, yes. He would have been doing everything he could to have amped it up to the next level, to really radicalize even more people. 2020 was a year of extremes. People were pushed to their breaking points by the stress of the pandemic and the violent exchanges with police that took place at racial justice protests nationwide. Whether that was people marching for racial justice or anarchists or even the police, I saw exhaustion on every face eventually and anger. There were waves of emotion that swept through the crowd. I know this because I felt them as well. It was a collective experience that rippled through everyone in their own way. And since then, I've been asking myself, how far did people get pushed by the protests in 2020? Is there a way back from the trauma people experience in the streets? 2020 was a year that tested many people's limits. Radical ideas, ideas that Sean cared about, like abolishing the police and prisons, would become part of mainstream conversation. And the street fights that followed would change Laura Kellier forever. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. Protests in Portland over George Floyd's murder went from a simmer to a boil quickly. On May 28th, protesters in Minneapolis set fire to and destroyed the police precinct where Derek Chauvin worked. They were outraged over George Floyd's brutal murder. And the next night, some Portlanders tried something similar. I had been following the racial justice protests for a few days at that point, watching them grow night by night. People who had been stuck at home for months because of COVID-19 were finding each other in the streets. It was a mix of outrage and human connection that started drawing more people. There were hundreds. And then there were thousands of people. They closed down bridges and highways. Among many people, Devin Boss with the group Rose City Justice was one of the protesters helping to organize these marches. It was just this culmination of so many specific things. He says that there was an energy there where it felt like the very white city of Portland was finally listening to black people about all the problems that had been around for years. I think that the more black people you have up front and speaking for themselves and dictating the direction of an overall movement, the more you're going to have actions that look more like the result that you want. And the protests led by Boss and others were peaceful. But on the night of May 29th, other protesters stopped their march outside the Multnomah County Justice Center, and the protest took a chaotic turn. I remember standing in the street outside the Justice Center, watching everybody talking about where the march might go next. But people were also talking about that Minneapolis police station that burned down. And as I stood near Lousdell Square, the place where Sean first learned about radical politics at the Occupy protests, we all heard this loud crack from a window being hit. It was followed by another, and another. And then I saw people start to trickle and then walked towards a set of doors at the Justice Center. The window shattered, 
and people stepped through. Some protesters were begging people not to break things. But with each person who went through the window frame, others became emboldened. I recorded video on my phone as protesters started fires inside the office, inside the multi-story building that houses the city's central police precinct and a jail full of people upstairs. People overturned desks and scorched documents inside the building. The destruction continued for what seemed like a while before any police moved into the area. And when those officers did arrive, they didn't give chase as people scattered. People in the crowd moved on to other parts of downtown. There was adrenaline, and somebody saw a bank. Capital One, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. I had never seen anything like it. It was like everyone had read Sean's essay on smashing windows, and they were all in on it for this one night. Kids who looked like they were still in high school were taking laptops from the Apple store and lifting Louis Vuitton bags from the mall. The police eventually drove people out of downtown using tear gas and impact weapons. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who is a moderate Democrat, fired off a tweet that night. In all capital letters, he wrote, enough. He said protesters would be, quote, hearing from me, Portland police, and community leaders. He also later put a curfew in place, but that didn't stop people. As I talked to Portlanders on the street the next night, I kept hearing the same thing. So when I saw everyone else coming out not afraid of curfew, I'm like, shit, I'm gonna come out and do this too. Hey, mom. Hey, how do you feel safety-wise? Are you, do you feel okay? I mean, being black in America, you, I mean, you're already born dead. So, I mean, none of, I mean, you know, uh, you know, it. Do I, do I feel safe? No, not really. Um, but you know, it's what's what's the point? We're already not safe anyway. So we might as well, you know, we're already not safe. We don't we don't make some noise with it. People were saying they didn't feel safe in their communities. The promise of safety by police meant little anymore. For some people, that was a new feeling. Like this one woman I talked to who had never been tear gassed before. How do you feel? I feel very outraged and very sad. The emotional trauma of police brutality is not something the majority of Americans understand, but it stays with you. I have my own experiences with this, and it took me a long time to understand how they were affecting me. I call that feeling the fear, and I try to take notice when I'm feeling it. There was one night very early on where a Portland police officer hit me with a baton, and that's when I really felt the fear. I was walking away from a line of police officers clearing an area. I was trying to follow police instructions. I'm moving back. I'm moving back. I showed my press credentials, but police were pushing me towards another line of officers who had their backs to me. I tried warning the officers that I was coming up behind them. I'm going this way. Hey, I'm behind you. I'm, I'm going that way. I'm I was behind him. I wanted to warn him. I was trying to do everything right, and the police still hit me. I know. I Oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that, all right? I didn't see that. I'm going. I'm going. When police use violence against you for seemingly no reason, it might give you the fear. For the first time, I felt afraid that I could be killed or seriously hurt by a Portland police officer. Police violence makes you have a rage inside, and it took me time to understand why. Eventually, I came to the realization that it's because there's nothing you can do about it. You can't hit them back. You can't even argue with them. You can't get revenge. You can't get justice. Most of the Portland police officers at protests in the summer of 2020 didn't even have their name badges displayed. I realized I was at the mercy of this police officer. I didn't have freedom of the press. I had freedom at this officer's permission. The whole country was scrutinizing police after George Floyd's murder. And yet this Portland police officer who hit me didn't have to worry about that at all. He used violence to put me in my place, and I was powerless to stop it. 
The anger I was feeling was what lots of people had been feeling. The helplessness that millions of people were feeling across the country when they turned up at a racial justice protest only to be met by police violence was the same feeling Black Americans have been dealing with for hundreds of years. The current movement against police killings in Portland started around 2003, when a small group of women pushed back after police officer Scott McAllister killed 21-year-old Kendra James during a traffic stop. Since then, Portland police have shot and killed Shane Clements, Jose Padilla, James Jahar Perez, Bruce Clark, William Grigsby, Dwayne Novak, Ronald Reibling Jr., Vernon Allen, Raymond Gorder, Dennis Young, David Hughes, Stephen Bolin, Jeffrey Turpin, Jason Spohr, Aaron Campbell, Jack Collins, Keaton Otis, Daryl Ferguson, Thomas Higginbotham, Brad Morgan, Billy Sims, Merle Hatch, Santiago Cincineros, Kelly Swoboda, Nicholas Davis, Christopher Healy, Alan Bellew, Michael Johnson, Stephen Leifel, Qantas Hayes, Terrell Johnson, John Elifritz, Patrick Kimmins, Samuel Rice, Andre Gladden, Jeb Brock, David Downs, Lane Martin, Coben Hendrickson, Robert Delgado, Michael Townsend, and Alexander Tadros. And the names of the officers who faced charges for those killings? Cities across the country have lists like that. They get new names added to them each year. Police killed more than 1,100 people in 2020 alone. The protests happening across the country in the wake of George Floyd's murder shared common themes. But they were also unique to each place. And that was true in Portland as well. Politically-minded people like Gregory McKelvey seized on the moment. They wanted to change policies that allowed these police killings to go on without any repercussions. McKelvey left Portland in 2018 to work for a housing nonprofit, but he moved back to the city about a year before the protests. He and his wife moved their two infants after a short time living in Atlanta just so McKelvey could have a chance to run the mayoral campaign of Sarah Iannarone. I think that that's when you're at your best, when 12 people that are leading these protests can also be in the boardroom, right? Iannarone was a progressive candidate with ties to local activists. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler is a millionaire, a Democrat who comes from old Northwest timber money. He served as a state treasurer of Oregon before becoming mayor. He's about as establishment as someone can get, and a PAC supporting the incumbent mayor slammed her for not denouncing property destruction. Sarah Iannarone tweets. Her tweets are strikingly cutting, vilifying people. But when Sarah was asked four times to condemn violence, here's all she had to say. Peaceful protests, in my opinion, might not necessarily be moving the conversation forward. Reject Sarah Iannarone. Portland needs a leader, not a tweeter. McKelvey says the optics of the protesters' property damage were unpopular with voters, but progressives were hopeful that seeing the police's harsh response to protests would push people to vote for change. And I, I feel like this is the progression of how we get to where we need to go. McKelvey was hopeful that by winning the mayor's office, the police would have to radically change how they conducted business. Because in Portland, the mayor usually functions as the city's police commissioner. Still, McKelvey says that he knows that trying to change things through policy would have been the opposite of what Sean would have wanted if he was alive and saw the protests exploding night after night. I think we would have disagreed in 2020 more than ever. It could have been bad he would have not viewed the power of these legislative fixes that I thought were possible because of the uprising. He would have seen that as reform and would have thought that this was an opportunity to radicalize massive amounts of people, even if we don't get them all, and escalating to something else. What Greg didn't know was that the political spectacle coming to Portland was going to reinforce Sean's way of seeing things. Police weren't just going to stop protecting people. They were going to turn to overt violence against people who were exercising their First Amendment rights to protest. After years of groups like Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer coming into the city to fight with anti-fascists, Portland became a case study in deepening political divisions across the country and a kind of easy Republican scapegoat for the nation's ills. 
Portland is a disaster. It's been a disaster for many, many years. In late June of 2020, former President Trump signed an executive order that on its face was to protect federal statues and monuments. He did that after people at protests toppled the statues of slaveholders. But what the order ultimately allowed was essentially a federal deployment in order to quash protests. We will go in and stop the problems in Portland in 24 hours. We could stop it very quickly. The president was also propping up his sagging re-election campaign and looking for ways to deflect from the rising death toll of the pandemic. Soon, hundreds of federal officers flooded into the city. Portlanders were outraged, and protests that had been shrinking after a month straight of demonstrations swelled up again to thousands of people. It was good for the people to see what our government really does to us. Sean wasn't there for this chaos, but his mother, Laura, was. I probably went out there about maybe 30 times. Each night, crowds would gather at the fence around the federal courthouse to shout at the federal officers. Some would shine powerful lasers in the officers' eyes or throw water balls at them. And then officers from an alphabet soup of federal agencies under the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department would unload pepper balls. Holy shit, it was crazy. Flashbangs and batons. I started getting beaten. Like, just, they were just whacking me with batons. And lots of tear gas. I thought I was going to die. I could not, I couldn't catch my breath. It was so bad. Protesters would shake the fence around the federal courthouse. The next day, I was bruised head to toe. Or throw fireworks at the courthouse. It was night after night of that. It was terrifying. And for each protester's response, law enforcement would use more violence in return. Federal officers appeared to pull some people off the streets into unmarked vans with no explanation. We have actually armed federal agents coming in, snatching people. It, it was scary. Some nights, the streets of Portland looked like a conflict zone. There were some nights, and it, it just, and once it popped, it popped. And they went hard. I mean, they were trying to hurt people. One night, Mayor Ted Wheeler even showed up with bodyguards and got tear gassed himself. National outlets filmed it. Against you? This political spectacle from the mayor and from national pundits, from the president, lasted just a few weeks. But the result was that more people got hit with batons. More people were getting radicalized. If you could be out there, you had to be out there. You had to stand up for right. It, it was time. It was like Sean getting punched at Occupy on a grand scale. Groups formed. The dads in hard hats with leaf blowers to push back tear gas. Veterans speaking about the limits of federal authority. Mutual aid groups handing out refreshments. The wall of moms. Over the course of a few weeks, I saw people go from wearing khaki shorts and surgical COVID masks to carrying homemade shields and having military-grade gas masks. People went from protesting for racial justice to being ready for battle each night. And in what sounds like a foreign country, Oregon's governor was able to negotiate a deal where federal officers drew down their forces gradually. And most people went home after that. But the most hardcore the people who had been beaten by police and really radicalized, who were following in Sean's footsteps, kept at it. They had all learned the lesson that Laura had been learning since Sean died. I can remember early on when the detectives say, you know, these people need to learn to just to trust us. And I'm thinking, these people need to learn to trust you. You beat them. You, you, they don't want people to trust them. No, they want people to fear them. There was a new reality that was setting in. The most radicalized people were on the streets every night now, trying to keep the protests alive. This group of people, many of them white, still chanted Black Lives Matter. But rather than fists in the air, breaking a window became de rigueur. For months, they would smash windows and graffiti buildings. Twice, I saw people throw Molotov cocktails. Other nights, protesters started fires at police buildings. 
Some people were from Portland, but some came from other parts of the country looking for a fight. On the one-year anniversary of Sean's death, anarchists held road flares up in the air, turning the sky blood red around the Democratic Party of Oregon building where he was killed. Then they purportedly broke windows. One anarchist wrote online, quote, they tried to kill him, but Armenia lives, motherfuckers. As protester numbers shrank to just a core group, the Proud Boys and others were watching. They hadn't entered the arena in 2020 yet. Joey Gibson says it's because he wanted the left to eat itself. I don't doubt that he wanted that. But with thousands of people consistently showing up each night against the police, and far-right groups usually mustering no more than a couple hundred people at their events, I also couldn't help but notice how a number they would have been if they did show up. But with fewer people on the streets after the end of what Portlanders called the Fed War, protests entered a third phase, one that would bring back the kind of violence of the brawl at Cider Riot, but only more extreme. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. protesting in 2020 became a routine. And that's something people don't really talk about. I've felt the ways that protests can make you feel alive. Help you avoid your own trauma. There were countless nights I choked on tear gas, had to dump water in my eyes so that I didn't blindly stumble off a curb. I got burns and even drew blood from impact weapons exploding on me. And then during the daytime, I couldn't feel anything at all. I started sports gambling all the time. I'd go to bar once they opened and punt money down on soccer matches. Whether I won or lost, didn't seem to matter. It started coming home with me and affected my relationships. I'd be with a loved one and I couldn't pay attention to what was happening. I wouldn't be present. My mind felt like a computer when you put in a scratch CD. I would struggle to process even simple tasks. I'd be in a room and not remember why I walked in there. It happened to the people around me, too, like photojournalist Nathan Howard. Clear out the gas mask. Uh, clear out, here's the big one. If you're a photographer, clear out all the tear gas off your photo sensor from your cameras. Nathan was out there just like me, night after night. Our lives revolved around protests for much of 2020. So just get home in one piece, get a good photo, keep in mind the context. That was kind of my mantra. We weren't out there breaking windows or protesting. In a lot of ways, protests were healthy for journalists. It helped elevate our careers. Our work appeared in national and international publications, outlets that didn't know us before 2020. But like everyone else out there, the toxic parts of the protest crept into our lives like its own kind of virus. But I do remember a moment near the end of Fed Wars, when Fed Wars wrapping up, and I know that I talked to a lot of journalists who had the same moment, but like, I was talking to family members and I was like, I don't feel like I can even relate to you guys anymore. Cause like, because of what we've been going through for the last year, I feel like I'm on an entirely different level. Nathan says he even let the protest take over when he proposed marriage to his fiancee. I got engaged during the protest. I proposed marriage during the protest because I thought the protests were over, like an idiot. I thought it was August, and I, it was winding down, and I thought we were at the end of it. He I, says he had been putting off proposing for months because he was working so much. But finally, one weekend, he and his girlfriend had family in town. 
he proposed at a Riverside Park. And then about six hours later, I had a gas mask on and I was getting tear gas by federal officers. You hear yourself now saying, I went to work at the night I proposed. I oh, yeah, that's not a good sign. No, it's not great. What do you think we're going to say? It sounds like an idiot. I mean, yeah, that's not a great sign. But it's also, you know, I, it's, it's a unique situation. People who were in the streets were becoming warped in ways that were hard to recognize at the time if you were out there. And people who were watching on TV or social media couldn't understand at all because they weren't experiencing these extreme events. There was a huge disconnect. Tension had been building for decades. And this confluence of white supremacy, police brutality, and radical left politics. And it was a situation pushed to an extreme level by the most contentious presidential election in recent memory. By August 22, 2020, less than three months after the nightly protests started, the heated politics of the upcoming presidential election had become the leading reason for people to turn up in the streets. On this day, a caravan of trucks and motorcycles adorned with Trump 2020 flags drove into downtown Portland. Today is a rally to stand up for our country, for the patriots, the good, hardworking men and women of this city and this country and to stand up and support the police. I was there, of course. And then it's the final spot is outside the, the central bureau here. Yes, my expectations are just to have a great time and celebrate our law enforcement officers. As the flag-waving crowd made their way into downtown, they revved their engines and started to form a line of people around the Justice Center where many Black Lives Matter protests had happened early in the year. Anti-fascist counter-protesters gathered on one side of the street. The pro-Trump crowd was on the other side of the street, in front of the Justice Center doors. People started yelling at each other. A group of people rode bicycles down the middle of the street between these two lines of people, shouting Black Lives Matter. Then as both sides of the streets filled up, far-right protesters with helmets and military vests and tasers marched down the same street. Other people on the far right carried shields. They were painted with QAnon logos. They carried paintball guns and batons. Both sides carried bear mace. It was like Fed War again, but without the feds. Here's how one of the anti-fascists there described the scene. Where the protest, instead of being like uh, BLM activists versus cops, was like fascist versus BLM protesters. It was like a change of pace for us. <laughs> there was no real police presence that day. And these groups on each side kept building. And eventually, someone fired the first paintball. Then minutes, people started to push and mace each other. Then it became all-out hand-to-hand combat. It was complete chaos, a straight-up fight in the street with hundreds of people. A few in the Trump crowd started swinging baseball bats. The fight at Ciderite had only been about a year before this, but nothing had changed since then. One former Proud Boy dressed in budget riot gear was photographed pointing a revolver at the crowd. People had their heads bounced off the concrete. Everyone got pepper sprayed. One person had their hand broken. Producer Jonathan Levinson had guns pulled on him by people in a parking garage. And protesters said they felt the threat rising. I did not like the vibe. There was a lot of paintballs, and then that one dude who drew like a full-on actual gun. That was fucking scary. Yeah, dude pulled a gun, man. There was a lot of guns in the crowd. Yeah, there were like hella people with these huge like rifles around their waist just walking around. It's uh, really intimidating. <laughs> As the protest was ending, the Trump crowd fled the area. They went back to the trucks and started to drive home. And only then did federal officers declare an unlawful assembly. Department of Homeland Security said it was needed because some people had entered a nearby park. These were the anti-fascists. That was the trigger for police interaction. Not a man pulling a gun on a crowd, but some people stepping onto grass owned by the federal government. The officers fired a few pepper balls and shouted for people to move. Get back! Get back! Move! Get the fuck out of here! 
This was an uncontained street brawl over political identities. After a summer of racial justice protests against police, the Trump crowd came out to act like they were the police. And the Portland police didn't touch them. They even let one man with an outstanding warrant for a parole violation and who was known for violence at protests to walk right by them. A few days after this street fight, Portland Police Chief Chuck Lavelle took questions from reporters. Lavelle had only been on the job for a couple months. His predecessor resigned as chief early in the racial justice protests. She would also face criticism for having an all-white command staff. Lavelle is black. Now Lavelle was trying to explain why police officers who were inside the Justice Center didn't come out and police the massive brawl. In order to get officers, you know, from, say, Central Precinct around to the other side to get into that situation would have taken a lot of time. And at this press conference, I asked why Portland police had only a few officers on the street during the day to break up this brawl, but had many more officers out there that night to declare a riot against a small crowd of anarchists. We're wondering, why did you choose to deploy resources in that way? You guys have always separated the groups, no separation on Saturday. So why exactly just decided to deploy resources that way with more at night, less in the daytime? Yeah. Well, we've been deploying resources at night for approaching 90 days now. So we have our staffing kind of set for the night activities. And uh, with, with Saturday afternoon's event, we were unsure really the number of folks that would be there as well. Uh, so we knew we had to have adequate staffing for Saturday night, and then we pulled together the people we had uh, for Saturday during the daytime. Chief Lavelle said because of the nightly protests, his staff was stretched thin. He said he didn't have enough people to keep these groups separated anymore. And just five days later, he'd be saying the same thing at a much more somber press conference. Last night, Portland witnessed a homicide. There was a political rally involving a vehicle caravan that traveled through Portland for several hours. Our Constitution permits freedom of speech and assembly, but criminal activity, especially violence, is out of bounds. More after this break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. This is strange to say, but when federal officers took over downtown Portland to battle with protesters, I felt safer than when it was with Portland police, or after when far-right groups showed up like the Proud Boys. Other than the times that federal officers would bull rush, which was truly terrifying, it was almost like the federal protests were predictable. The most daring people would stand at the fence around the federal courthouse, and the feds would respond with tear gas and crowd control. Then everyone would go home and do it again tomorrow. But what happened at the August 22nd brawl shattered that predictability. Suddenly, we were back to the right-left dynamics of years before, only now the likelihood that someone was carrying a gun was much higher. The weekend after the Justice Center street fight, a Trump supporter who lives in Idaho scheduled a caravan rally to drive through Portland. Hundreds of vehicles showed up, and my read, just like every other journalist there, was that it was going to be dangerous. And uh, what are you expecting today? Uh, good time, and we're all going to support the president, you know, in a safe way. Uh, today's about freedom, and... Uh and showing that uh, Antifa doesn't have the full chokehold on Portland. So I noticed it's like a drive-through. Is there any plan to like like get out of the cars and hang out in downtown, or is it just driving through? I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a parade style, but uh, but just really show our support and uh, in in a big way. Is hopefully the press will carry it like yourself, and uh, and it'll get some national coverage, which I doubt it, but it might happen. As this Trump caravan approached Portland it became obvious this was going to be national news. Joey Gibson was at this protest. He told producer Grant Irving he had only gone to a few demonstrations so far that summer. I was there for the first three nights. 
Tell me about them. You wear a mask. Oh yeah, I was dressed like Antifa, just watching and observing. And when there were thousands of people on the streets for racial justice, Gibson stopped showing up. I was just like, you know what? You know, this is what they want, then go ahead. I mean, do your thing, Portland. But now there were hundreds of Trump supporters against hundreds of anti-fascists. The numbers were less imbalanced, and only the most dedicated people, the most hardcore, were going out to the streets regularly. With the numbers more even, Gibson decided once again to start provoking people in Portland. We were kind of in the front of the line, so we got to drive through Portland, no issue, and we kind of had fun. We were bullhorning and having a good time. As the trucks and cars were driving towards Portland, I watched as anti-fascists gathered on an interstate off-ramp. The anti-fascists stopped some of the caravan vehicles. Two men got out and started fist-fighting right there on the interstate. People were kicking vehicles. People with the far right rode in truck beds and fired paintball guns at bystanders. Once these initial fights broke out, for a reason that's never been articulated, police removed officers they were using to block the interstate off-ramps into downtown Portland. The result was that the entire caravan of conservatives, many of them from the suburbs or from Washington state, had free passage into downtown Portland. Once there, there were pockets of violence. Fights escalated into open brawls, just like they had a week before outside the Justice Center. This continued for hours as police made some small interventions and tried to get the trucks out of downtown. But it was already too late. Block by block along the truck route, violence was breaking out. After the sun had set, I got a text message from my friend Nathan Howard. He said someone had been shot. I was like three or four feet away from when he got shot. I was on the phone uh, and then heard the gunshots behind me. Dropped the phone, sprinted over and you know, photographed him as the medics tried to treat him, as uh, his friend tried to fight off Antifa medics who were trying to get in there to treat him. Photographed Antifa medics trying to fight off cop medics as they came in and tried to treat him. And, I mean, he was dead within a couple minutes. As I got to the scene, I saw the man who was killed was wearing a Patriot prayer hat. I texted Joey Gibson, trying to confirm if he knew the man. I later learned he did. His name was Aaron J. Danielson. It was a night that felt like it was inevitable. Here's Nathan again. For weeks leading up to this, there were far-right protesters driving by far-left protests, firing guns in the air. There were people posting photos on Twitter and Instagram and Telegram, holding AR-15s, saying we're coming to the for next you know, BLM protest. I mean, we all knew this was going to happen. Sometimes as a journalist, you hope that by showing the cracks in your community, you can help people avoid them. But most of the time, you're doing little more than documenting another person who fell in. We live in a, a somewhat singular moment in American history where political violence can escalate to gunshots in the middle of a major metropolitan city. And it's not even that unusual. Uh, as a journalist, that is absolutely fascinating to me. I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that I cover that as closely and as in-depth as possible. As a human being, I find it important. By the end of 2020, no one felt like they were winning. Gregory McKelvey's progressive candidate would go on to lose her election. Ted Wheeler would remain Portland's mayor. Thousands of people took to the streets demanding change, and after blood and tears were shed, police received massive amounts of overtime pay, and the cuts to their budget were negligible. And now, a person was killed over politics. Gibson and other people with Patriot Prayer had been with Jay in this caravan together earlier in the day but they became separated from Danielson shortly before he was killed. Joey Gibson says when the shooting happened, he was trying to draw anti-fascists away from another group of people. I had walked up to a crowd of people who were just basically following us down the road, attacking us, harassing us into the gas station. And I didn't know it was um, Jay until I'd finally gotten in my car pulled out safe, I'm burning from all the pepper spray, and I get a phone call from, I think, a New York Times reporter, and he says, guy had died, and he was wearing a Patriot Prayer hat, and he sent me a picture, and it was Jay. The killing was devastating for Jay Danielson's family and friends. He was a great man, and he did not deserve the end he met. 
we ask now that Portland, Oregon, and the entire country stand together and renounce any further acts of violence. No family or friends should ever have to deal with this type of loss for any reason at all, period. Jay Danielson was armed with a handgun and had dozens of rounds of ammunition when he died. He had a can of mace and a baton as well. Lots of people were armed now. He was a politically active person killed on Portland streets. It was a point that wasn't lost in Laura Kellier because she had been out there too that night. When Jay got killed, I actually was with the group that was heckling Joey Gibson. Laura says that around the time that Gibson left, word started to spread around the crowd that someone had been killed. It started getting around that, oh God, somebody was shot, you know, and at first nobody knew who was shot. Soon protesters learned that the man who died was wearing a Patriot Prayer hat. And Laura says that's when the mood of the crowd started to change. I was back at Chapman and they said, oh no, it was it was a, one of the right-wingers. We got one of them. And people started cheering? Mm-hmm. Laura says this killing was a moment that brought back the harsh pain she felt when she lost Sean. The only thing that went through my head is I thought of his family, I thought of his mom. She's gonna get that call. I think that just brought up too much for me. And I realized I can't, for my own mental health, I cannot do this. Violence changes people. And it's notable that at this moment of the most extreme violence Portland saw in 2020, Laura didn't feel joy or the satisfaction of vengeance against someone with ties to people who had harassed her after Sean's death. She felt empathy, a moment of grace and compassion for the victims of violence, regardless of a person's politics. And maybe that's because Laura is someone who knows the ways violence has changed her life. Laura says that she mostly stopped protesting after this moment. In the first year after Sean died, Laura didn't know how to carry on, didn't know how to still be a mother to her other children. My whole life was my kids. And I didn't know how to get, I didn't know how to get out of this horrible, horrible grief, sadness. I didn't know how to live again. The massive uprising and protests of 2020 gave Laura cover for her sadness. It gave her a way to avoid her own trauma. It gave her a way to channel her anger at police, at the fact that Sean's killer was still walking free. I tried to stay really busy going to, you know, protest, just, you know, doing mindless things and stuff like that, but it actually took such a worse toll on me. Today, Laura Kellier says she realizes she was chasing the memory of Sean through the fog of tear gas. Like I said, I just had that overwhelming sadness for his mom, Jay's mom. And I realized I'm not Sean. I don't have any business being out here. I can't do this anymore. I keep looking for him. This isn't just, it's not helping anything. It sounds like you realized in that moment that you were going out there to, in memory of Sean, more than, more than the politics of whatever's going on. Yeah, which, please don't take this the wrong way. Black lives definitely matter, and it was so important to be out there. Um, but I didn't have the mental capacity to be out there or the physical capacity really for what we were facing any longer, and I realized that. Jay Danielson's killing was a turning point for Laura in terms of attending protests. But she also didn't abandon the ideals that Sean cared about. She wants to abolish the police. She wants to abolish prisons. She wants Sean's vision to be realized. And that's put her in a complicated position. Because without those things, it's not clear how she would get justice for Sean's homicide. Laura says it's been a long journey for her to understand what justice would look like. But now, two years after the homicide, she says she's ready for a resolution between her and Sean's killer. At first, I wanted the police to arrest him and make him pay with prison. I don't have that feeling anymore. I think you said you have two outcomes that you would prefer. Yeah, that's taken care of by the streets or that he meets with me one-on-one. -on -one. I can hear his life story, find out what he needs to change his life. Through the process of learning more about restorative justice and also knowing my own struggles that I've had in my life and, you know, if I could have had somebody with kindness you know, what would that have changed? I don't know what his life story is. 
you know, I, I really don't. I, I have assumptions that I've made. Um, Do you think those two outcomes that you describe now, um, you know, if I'm just thinking, would Sean go, yep, that, we have the same ideas there? I don't know. I would hope so. Part of Laura's journey towards the truth of that deadly night and what led to it has also been about getting the people who were there who know the truth to open up. The secrecy of the anti-fascist world has kept a full accounting of that night compartmentalized among a small number of people. But one day last spring, a message came up on my phone. It was from Sean's friends, the ones who were there that night he was killed. In this message, they said they had changed their minds about talking. Laura had convinced them. It's like when you date and you're like, you text something and they have, they're just replying and they decide not to, and you're like, fuck. It is like that. But the thing is that if they keep deleting and, and rewriting, that's a good thing for you, right? Because they are thinking about what they're going to say to you. Now, for the first time ever, they're telling their story publicly. That's next week on The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Ryan Haas and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delegirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Additional music by Deli Girls. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekpatola. We had production assistance from Bashak Artin and Mia Warren. Oregon Public Broadcasting storytelling and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org pod. Thank you. <laughs>